Well, good morning, and uh, a special good morning to all of the mothers who are here. We greet all in the name of the Lord. We greet mothers with special respect and affection this morning. Mother's Day and uh, this particular Sunday are uh, predictably devastating for attendance. Lots of people have gone to be with mom wherever she is, and evidently that's not here. And then we graduated so many students. I spoke at three graduations in the last 10 days, and uh, it's just amazing how many we had. Twice we had, uh, for one of them, a few thousand, and the other a couple of thousand people on the lawn. We had two, thankfully, very successful outdoor graduations. The second one was a really close call. Uh, but we, uh, we, we got all the graduates graduated. Uh, and the ceremony was complete. We're very thankful. But those of you who know Third Avenue Baptist Church know that this Sunday is the Sunday after the tsunami. And so here we are. And I'm proud to be with every one of you this morning for the study of God's Word. We finished Titus when last we were together. And we're moving today to Colossians, and the intention here is to have a, a, a few shorter studies before beginning another longer exposition. And uh, Colossians follows very neatly on Titus, another Pauline epistle, this one a little longer than Titus, which is one of the shortest books in the New Testament. But as we're thinking about Colossians, one of the reasons we turn to this text is because we are in a situation in which we're constantly in need of a biblical reset. We're living at a time in which the prevailing secular worldviews, and, and frankly, the headline issues coming at us so fast, can lead us to just need a regular reaffirmation of the comprehensiveness of what the Holy Spirit delivered to the church through Paul in this Colossian epistle. So we're going to turn to it in just a moment, but first let's begin with prayer. Father, we thank you for giving us the opportunity to turn to your word again and again and again and again. Father, we pray that you will take your word. We pray that you will apply it word by word, sentence by sentence to our hearts to conform us to the image of Christ. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, the book of Colossians is one of those that immediately begins by telling us to whom it is first written. Titus was about who was the messenger. Paul was writing to Titus in order that the church might receive it, and uh, we recall that uh, one of the things we noted was this little surprise that came at the end when Paul refers to you all, indicating all of a sudden that as it began, just writes to Titus very personally, it ends with you all, indicating the letter was intended to be publicly read, and even though it was addressed to Titus, it would be understood by the entire congregation by the end as having been written to them all. Here you have Colossians. Paul's writing directly to them. 
He begins with this typical greeting, but there's always something in this typical greeting that catches our attention. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. We are sometimes a little bit afraid of this word apostle. And uh, we're a little bit afraid of it because of the misuse of it, because of some who would claim today to be apostles. In, in my line of work, you can be put in some difficult situations daily. But sometimes you just aren't prepared for exactly what happens. And honestly, it's, just in terms of theological conviction, sometimes it's hard to know what's expected. What am I supposed to do now? I was in a meeting in Baltimore just walked into the meeting, and it was an important meeting, and it was about religious liberty. And uh, so we, we had in some of the leading litigators, specific case. The pastor had been invited in from a very large church in downtown Baltimore. I turn around, this pastor standing there, and he said, hello, I am apostle, and he gave me his name. Now, my first instinct, honestly, was to say, I don't think so. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's socially, it's just kind of hard to say, you know, I just, well, hi. You know, so the way I dealt with it was I never referred to him because I couldn't say apostle. It wasn't the appropriate context to get into a lengthy debate about why he had wrongly appropriated the title. But, you know, the most dangerous part of that is that it's not just an honorary appellation. And I, I believe it's, it's actually evidence of a live heresy, not just a wrong teaching, but a live heresy. Because the use of the word apostle in that specific context was an intentional use meaning that continuing revelation comes through that man who claimed the title apostle and the church of which he was pastor recognized that continuing revelation was coming through him. That's the problem. We don't believe there is any such office in the church today, and we certainly don't believe the Holy Spirit is offering new apostolic testimony. That's why when we refer to the apostolic gospel and to the apostolic deposit, we're referring to the New Testament. Now, we believe wholeheartedly that the Holy Spirit opens our eyes that we may understand the text. The Holy Spirit who inspired the text opens our eyes that we might see and applies the truth to us internally. That's very different than an apostolic ministry. The apostolic ministry here was the ministry of the Apostle Paul, and he rightly identifies himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. But notice, not by his own like job application, but by the will of God. Now, every time we look at one of Paul's letters, we come across this phrase, and it can become very customary to us so that we just kind of jump over it. But we just need to recognize that if this is just Paul the guy... We're in big trouble. If this is even just Paul the pastor, we are in big trouble. Because the apostle, as an office in the early church, was not, was not just a believer and was not just even a pastor. 
but was a conduit through which the Holy Spirit was speaking divine revelation. So for us, the word apostle is an indispensable word because without it, I mean, frankly, we just aren't going to go to the bank on, the, on Mr. Paul's ministerial advice. But the Apostle Paul, that's something very different. That's why he begins the letter with this, because it changes everything. If he's writing in the capacity as, you know, the church consultant, well, you know, he can take it or leave it. If he's, if he's writing just as pastor, you think, well, this should be encouraging, but we have no idea what it's really going to be. But you also don't have that many letters from pastors because the pastors, by definition, are nearly there. So these apostolic letters found in the New Testament, the church recognized in them absolute validity as Holy Scripture. And that's why we believe that with the closing of the canon of the New Testament, there is no need for the apostolic role and office to continue because it does continue in the books that they left, in the letters that they wrote. Jesus said the perfect is coming. Speaking of revelation, that's the completion of what we were given as the church for the deposit of faith. And that's where we are now. Paul identifies himself as an apostle and tells us that he's not alone. So when we were looking at the letter called Titus, remember that the apostle Paul said, I have two, I have two sons in the ministry, Timothy and Titus. And remember, he, uh, he went into detail precisely because of the false teaching that he was counter, countering in Crete. He sent, he sent Titus to Crete because Crete had this enormous problem of Judaizers saying that you basically had to become Jewish before you could become Christian. He sends Titus because he says, I have two sons, one circumcised, Timothy, and one uncircumcised, Titus. And so... Just to make the point, when there's a controversy in the church about whether you have to be circumcised or not, Paul sends his uncircumcised delegate. Situation here in Colossae is different. The situation is actually more different than we might yet recognize. With Paul is Timothy. You know the, the story of how Paul came to know Timothy, how he met Timothy, who caught his attention so very quickly, uh, a very gifted and spiritually mature young man, emphasis on young, and uh, he was a man who had been raised by his mother and his faithful grandmother, so both of them are honored in scripture, both his mother and his grandmother for their having raised him in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But he was, he had a Roman father, and he was uncircumcised. Now, Paul circumcised Timothy himself. Just in order to make the point that this Jewish boy was not living in rebellion, but rather had identified as the son of the old covenant in order to become a servant minister of the New Covenant. That's because Timothy's mother was Jewish. And by Jewish law, that meant that he was an uncircumcised Jew, which was an offense. Titus wasn't 
Jewish. He's Gentile by background, so it was of no matter. And thus Paul, in those two young men, made that point. But Timothy is now with Paul, not Titus. And the question is, where is Timothy with Paul? And we basically have one of two answers, and neither one is determinative for the meaning of the text. He is either fairly close to Colossae, but not able to be there, or he is in Rome. Now, we have to work backwards a little bit on this, because just to fast forward in Colossians, by the time we come to the end of the letter, it will become clear that Paul is in prison. Timothy is with him. So he is in prison. That's the main reason he can't get to Colossae. But by the Holy Spirit, he is writing to them. It's interesting that he doesn't say that right up front. That, that, isn't, that isn't what he puts out right immediately. Instead, his typical greeting, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So this is Paul as the writer of the epistle, and Timothy, Timothy, his dear fellow servant, is with him. So the from is the first in this apostolary form. The second is the two, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father. Grace and peace the common two words that Paul would use in a greeting. And uh, this has gone down through the histories of Christianity is the common way that Christians often, often greet one another. Sometimes formally. You walk into some of the old liturgical churches and uh, you'll be greeted simply with the words grace and peace, grace and peace. Sometimes there will be a greeting as a part of uh, one of these traditional services this is not when people shake hands and say, hey, I'm Helen, hey, I'm George. No, none of that. Uh, but this is when people simply turn to one another and say grace and, and peace. So this is the apostolic pattern. We're familiar with it. Those are words deeply saturated in Christian truth. They are gospel terms. You'll notice that uh, there are also terms of prayer in this case, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. So it's not Paul saying, Timothy and I send you our grace. They're exulting in the grace which is given from the Father above. Now, very quickly, Paul's able to speak kindly to this church. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Well, that's a sweet thing to be able to say. And, you know, if you're going to write a letter like this, it's nice to be able to say something nice up front. It's uh, kind of the way we would want to do this. It's uh, a way of affirming the relationship. It's a way of affirming the Colossians and the faith. It's a way of, of uh, just warmly greeting them. And this is a way of saying to the Colossians, you know, when I think of you, this is the first thing I think of. Now, he's going to have to address some issues in this letter. But it is good for us to just have this pastoral model that what you talk about first is what you want to talk about last. 
And that is the respect and love that you have for each other. In this case, Paul's respect for the church at Colossae. It has specific content. In verse 4, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and that's matched to what comes in the next phrase, and the love that you have for all the saints. Now, Paul will make clear this is one of the signs of authentic Christianity. This is a sign of an authentic church. It's a testimony of a common faith, and it's demonstrated in the love these believers have for one another. It's a good thing for us to remember. If you walk into a church and there doesn't appear to be any love among the members for each other, that's a very significant discount of their love for Christ. The vertical is to produce the horizontal. If there's no horizontal, you have to call into question the vertical or at least know that something's very wrong that has to be fixed. The love you have for all the saints, that no doubt is beyond Colossae, as we know from the offerings that have been taken and the the prayers for the early churches for each other. But Paul then goes on with his clause, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Just a short phrase, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. This eschatological frame, this eschatological frame is just really, really, really important. It's, uh, it's the frame that tells us that we are living in this in-between time in which we've come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and Jesus is coming. And, and we live in this in-between time in the expectation of the Lord's return, but also in the assurance of the fact that we are being kept. We are headed to heaven, and our hopes are being laid up in heaven, and those hopes laid up in heaven are sure. It's very helpful for us to know, especially when the Apostle Paul will talk about difficult things. And when you think about the Apostle Paul being in prison, even as he's writing this, That tells us something very significant. All right. Paul's heard about them. They've heard from Paul. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you is indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and growing as it does also among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Well, we need to read all that in this particular moment because we kind of need to read backwards a little bit from Epaphras, which is probably short for Epaphroditus. I guess if your name is Epaphroditus, it might be helpful to short it every once in a while to Epaphras. And Epaphroditus is known to us, and he is, he is there, and he's an encourager to the church there in Colossae. And so the Apostle Paul is making that connection. He's saying that he learned of their faithfulness from Epaphras. Paul talks about the gospel, the word of truth, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it does also among you. 
since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. If there are difficult words in that particular phrase, they're not overly difficult, but we need to be honest here. It is what the Apostle Paul is talking about when he says, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing. Well, what's the whole world if it means in the whole world right then? Because you can pretty much come up with a map. In fact, in your Bible, you may have a map of the early church, and the early church is largely situated uh, in Rome, you might say, to the west, and then coming across all the way to uh, the church in Jerusalem. And so then you, you've got some representation very soon in Alexandria, there in the, in the area of North Africa, and uh, other areas in North Africa that are going to receive the gospel. And by the way, this is the commerce. This is the Roman uh, commercial commerce that's taking place. Commercial commerce, how's that for a redundancy? So it's the Roman commercial navigation that uh, you have there in the Mediterranean. But that's really the point. At this, at this juncture... When the Apostle Paul is writing this letter, in what sense is the gospel known to the world? Well, it is just because I think the easiest way to think of this is that when the Apostle Paul is writing this, there are two worlds. First world is Rome. It's the world that Rome occupies, and it is referred to as a world. And beyond that is the rest of the world outside the Roman world. It's clear that when the Apostle Paul is talking about the whole world in terms of the reach of the gospel, and when you have Christ saying, go into all the world and preach the gospel, Christ is not talking about the extent of the Roman Empire. He's talking about the globe. This is what drives the modern missionary movement. This is why Christians have sent and now send missionaries all over the world, isn't all over the globe. There are a couple other things to remember here, and that is that I just mentioned a globe. The Apostle Paul did not own one. So this is where you also have inspiration and meaning that goes beyond the author's imagination. It's easy for us to understand. He's right, the whole world. He's just, the Apostle Paul could not tell you everywhere <laughs> might be included in the world. So it's just important for us to recognize that, yes, this does mean the whole world. That means everywhere, planet Earth, you can find human beings. But it also means that, at least in the proximate world there of, of Paul, the Roman world, word about Christianity is spreading very fast. Word about the gospel is spreading very fast. And that is understandable because the Roman Empire was a system of imperial roads, of imperial navigation, of an imperial language, Latin. And, uh, but, of course, since it was the successor to Greece, the learned among them also spoke Greek, which is why you have the, uh, the New Testament written in Koine Greek, this common Greek of the time. And so it is very important for the Apostle Paul to exult in the power of the gospel here and of the fact that as he says, in the whole world, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing. And it does so in Colossae. 
and it did so immediately since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved servant. This affirmation of Epaphras is important. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Okay, so there's some communication between Epaphras and Paul. That must be the occasion for Paul's letter to the church. Epaphras must have communicated to Paul specific pastoral concerns he had about the church. And we can see exactly how this happens. You have Epaphras, he's a pastor. He's a pastor there in Colossae. He's dealing with, of course, the the encounter between the gospel and the Greco-Roman world in the particular context of Colossae, which was a major city in the Greco-Roman world. City there in Asia Minor. And now you've got Epaphras, who evidently must have been the establisher, according to other records, of the church there in Colossae. And uh, he needs help from an apostle. Epaphras is a pastor. He's not an apostle. He needs apostolic help. So there's every evidence that either he had gone to Paul or he had written to Paul. In any event, Paul is responding to Epaphras about concerns Epaphras has for his church in Colossae. In one sense, just ministerially, in a New Testament context, this is exactly what should take place. We should be thankful for this. This is an example of a faithful pastor doing what a faithful pastor is supposed to do. And Paul's responding as an apostle with what a faithful apostle was supposed to do. And the Holy Spirit wanted us to have this letter. We don't have a letter from Epaphras to Paul. There may never have been a letter. It may have been a direct communication. It may have visited him. It's clear that they've had the contact because Paul speaks of him as this faithful minister of Christ, and then says, he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. In verse 9, and so from the, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, I'll just say, if contemporary writers of letters as as believers. If if you write a fellow believer a letter this dense, you're going to be known as that guy. I I mean, surely your letter is going to be appreciated, but we write with a little lighter touch these days. English teachers will say that it is smart in contemporary English style and composition to let each sentence speak about one thing or make one point. In fact, they might call what the Apostle Paul has given us here a run-on sentence. It could be broken up into separate sentences. It's not the way the Apostle Paul thinks. It's not the way the Greek language works. From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Asking may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Well, that makes a lot of sense, right? He's come to know of the love of the church there in the Spirit. He heard that from Epaphras. And yet he's praying for them. Indeed, it says every day he hasn't ceased to pray for them. 
but with his specific request, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Okay, so the Apostle Paul is praying that the church, the Christians there, will be filled with all understanding to know the will of God. It's an interesting place to start. It makes sense. I mean, we certainly want that for one another. It certainly appears to be exactly what the apostles should be calling out among the Christians there. So good so far. Being filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding is going to translate into something. This is verse 10, so as to, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So Paul prays for them that they will be filled with all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that that would lead to walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. So you're very familiar with the fact that in the ancient world, and frankly, even today in, in our English language context, when we talk about our walk, we really mean our life, our conduct, our progress. Our walk in the Lord, our walk with the Lord. If we come up to someone and say, how's your walk with the Lord going? You're going to know what it means. It's speaking of the totality of the relationship. And that's exactly how the Apostle Paul is using it here. But it also is a very practical reference. To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. Okay, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. That might alert us to something that will come in the letter that might reflect something of a problem that needs to be corrected in order that this walk with the Lord may be made more evident. This will be fully pleasing to him, that is to God, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So this obedience, this rightful walk, will produce the knowledge of God and works of obedience, and that's just how the gospel works. And so that's just a good way to begin an apostolic letter. Look, I've heard of you. I know of your faithfulness. My prayer for you is that you'll walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. My prayer for you is that your deeds and your works will be put together in a way that is pleasing to God. My prayer for you is that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that you be bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. It turns internal in a big way in verse 11. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Oh my goodness. He's praying that these Christians will be strengthened with all power Okay. According to his, that it would be Christ's glorious might. Stop, pause there for a moment. If you just take the Old Testament and you think of all the words that are used to describe God, but in the Old Testament, insofar as we're reading just the Old Testament, we're thinking of the ascription of those words rightly to describe God the Father. 
Think of him, immortal, invisible, God only wise, and light and accessible, hid from our eyes. All the attributes of power and the attributes of being on the one hand. He's indivisible. He's unbegotten. In, in terms of power, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. And then the, the attributes of character we often refer to them are the moral attributes. His love and his mercy and his graciousness, his slowness to anger. You put all these attributes together, remember that every one of the attributes of the Father is also an attribute of the Son. And Apostle Paul's making reference to that here. Praying for them, increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, that omnipotence for all endurance and patience with joy. So our endurance and our patience is based upon God's omnipotence and faithfulness. So he who began a good work in us will complete it on that day. We're called to be faithful, but we are not omnipotent and we are not all powerful. We can't hold ourselves but we stand in the power of the omnipotent God even as we are called according to his glorious might. That, word, that word's interesting. Again, might. So you ask the average Christian, you know, why are we saved? Well, it's because God loved us so much. That's in the Bible. Why are we saved? Because of the, of the obedience of Christ all the way to the cross? Yes, absolutely. But we are saved because God has the power to save. And he exercises that power to save sinners. The bottom line of why we are saved is because God's saving power is a dimension of his omnipotence. And if he were not omnipotent, it would not be safe for us to gather today. And our hopes would not be safe in him. His glorious might. By the way, there's another dimension to that we have to think about. God's omnipotence is going to be fully, unconditionally displayed on the day of the Lord, on the day of judgment. And, 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 and so every single human being who has ever lived will experience the display of the absolute omnipotence of God on that day. So here, here's the issue. Is that omnipotence, is that omnipotence going to be for us or against us? That's the big question. It's an amazing thing the Apostle Paul here can talk about God's glorious might. In the Old Testament, that glorious might was primarily referring to God's faithfulness to protect and to save Israel, his covenant people. Now that same word in terms of glorious might is extended to God's preservation and protection of Christ's people, even as we are now safe in Christ. This is glorious might. Now, God's glory poured out upon sinners is going to be a display of his glory. But on that day, God's glorious might to believers is that we do not bear the wrath of God against our sin because Christ has borne the wrath of God against our sin. Paul prays for them endurance and patience with joy. 
giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of saints in light. Another fascinating text. The Apostle Paul, he's just dropping these things. He's introducing some vocabulary that's the same and yet not same, some logic that's the same and yet not exactly the same. As he writes to the other churches describing the gospel, he uses very similar language, but this is one of the reasons why we need the book of Colossians in our Bible is because here we also encounter some language that's a little different than we see elsewhere. Because right here in Colossians chapter 1, in this very text, we are told that the Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. There's a lot behind that. He, he has qualified us. So in other words, there's no inherent quality in us to claim this inheritance of the saints. There's, just, there's nothing. There's, we have nothing. It's like the old hymn says, nothing in my hand I bring, only to thy cross I cling. There's this, we got nothing to bring. Or as the old preacher said, we got nothing to bring but our stinking sin. He's got nothing to give us but his amazing grace. All right, fascinating. As you look at this, all of a sudden we are told that we're qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints. So what, what is the inheritance of the saints then? I mean, okay, that sounds great. That sounds great. Someone comes up to you and says, oh, goodness hear you, you are now fully qualified to receive the inheritance of the saints. That's great. What in the world are you talking about? What has been promised to the saints? All things. All things promised to us. Life everlasting. Obviously, the forgiveness of sins. Union with Christ. All the riches of Christ are now ours to participate in. He's given us the forgiveness of sins. He has given us the forgiveness of sins to the extent that the Father, because of the atonement accomplished by the Son, no longer even remembers our sin to hold our sin against us. We are given sanctification. We're given the gift of the Spirit. The gifts we are given in salvation are limitless. And all this has been given to us as an inheritance of the saints. Oh, and by the way, we don't have to wait to receive this inheritance. We do have to wait to receive this inheritance in full. But even right now, we're living in this inheritance. So what we're doing this morning as we gather together in Christian worship. We are sharing in this inheritance together. We're singing songs that we don't deserve to sing. We're going to be hearing a word we don't deserve to hear. And we're going to be enjoying fellowship we don't deserve to enjoy because this is a foretaste of the inheritance that has been stored up for us. We're enjoying some of our inheritance early. By the way, just the last word there is important too. The inheritance of the saints in light. Okay, that's going to turn out to be really important. The importance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is one of the most important single verses in the entire New Testament. I grew up in uh, Florida, like other southern states, particularly in the smaller towns in central and north Florida. 
You've got the U.S. highways that crisscross. And yet, in a lot of municipalities, you can't have a business on a U.S. highway. You can have a business along a U.S. highway. It's true in Kentucky and several places, too, where you have access roads off to the side. That means on each side. So there's access road east, access road west, access road north, access road south. It's a way of making sure the traffic moves smoothly and you know, folks aren't always slowing down to turn left or turn left, turn right. So you, 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 get, you have to get off on the access road if you want to go to the tire store. You have to get off on the access road to go to Dollar General. You can see it from the highway, but you can't get to it from the highway. You get to get off on the access road. Well, in the sociology of congregations, these are referred to as the churches on the access road. Now, you can figure out that sociology pretty fast. The churches downtown are the churches downtown. That's establishment. The churches in the suburbs are the churches in the suburbs. That's the suburban expansion. The churches on the access road, ah, they're the churches on the access road. That's where you find the apostolic deliverance tabernacle. The word deliverance, I was confused by when I was a kid because there was this church on the access road in my southern town that was continually advertising deliverance services. And, you know, when you're school age, elementary school age, you're riding in the back seat of the car, you pass a church that says deliverance ministries, got a big banner out front. You know, Mom, Dad, our church does not have those. You know, should we? Sounds like a Bible word. You know, what do they have we don't have? Well, you know, my parents, sweet, faithful Christians, they just explained, like to a seven-year-old, eight-year-old, you know, this is, uh, we, we, this is, we talk about that as salvation. When we talk about being saved, that's what we're talking about. Well, is that true or false? Well, let me just say, it's absolutely true. That answer is absolutely right. It is the main deliverance of which the New Testament speaks it's actually more radical than what they're talking about on the access road. On the, on the access road, in the apostolic deliverance ministry, I, and, you know, you go to elementary school, you go to elementary school, some of those kids too. And, and, and so that was deliverance from this sin or that sin, deliverance from this oppressive spirit or that oppressive spirit. I'm not saying that any of that is impossible and that all of that is ridiculous. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the deliverance of which the Apostle Paul is speaking is this comprehensive, absolutely glorious deliverance from hell. But for the gospel of Jesus Christ, every single one of us would be in the category of destined for eternal punishment in hell. And in this life would be destined in all of our conscious moments to nothing but the hopelessness that would belong to those who have no hope. We've been delivered from that. But the language of the Apostle Paul here is absolutely amazing. This is one of the most precious and powerful verses about the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Paul says he, this is the Father. You've got to keep the pronouns here straight. They're, they're clear, but just keep them straight. Because in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in Christ, he, that is the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, this helps us to understand verse 12 because we are told of our share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Two Christians walking down the road. What's your hope? I'm looking forward to that deliverance. I, I, I'm looking forward to receiving that inheritance of the saints in light. What are you thinking about? The inheritance of the saints in light. We have an inheritance that is ours by the declaration of the Father through the gift of the Son. It's an inheritance which comes to us because we've already been described as those who belong to God and, and, and He has now bestowed upon us an inheritance. That's been mentioned earlier, but now this inheritance is in light. But the next verse tells us that we've been transferred, that's the best translation I can think of here, or delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son. So there's the light. We've been delivered from the domain of darkness. And that's exactly where we belonged. That's exactly where we deserve to be in the domain of darkness because we were sinners. We'd rebelled against God. We had in our finitude, rebelled against the infinitely holy, there was nothing for us but eternal darkness and captivity, eternal punishment, because of the way we had failed to glorify and obey God. We were in the domain of darkness. So this transfer, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness. We weren't headed there, we were there. Okay, now that's something, again, how many Christians understand that? Christians tend to misspeak about the timeline of the gospel, and, and, and they will say something like, you know, there's a day in which it's going to be clear that we're destined for one or for the other, and on that day, the righteous, and that means bearing the righteousness of Christ by faith, will go into everlasting joy. The impenitent, those who do not know Christ, will go into everlasting punishment. So at that day, it's like all of a sudden, that day, we are then transferred to the dominion of light, and on that day, those who are not in Christ are transferred into the dominion of darkness. This verse tells us we have that timeline wrong. We're born into the domain of darkness. When Adam sinned, and in Adam we all sinned, we effectively became part of the dominion of darkness. We're transferred out of the dominion of darkness when we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we baptize a new believer up here, we're baptizing what's already taken place, and that's the transfer or deliverance of someone from the domain of darkness into the domain of God's glorious light. It's one of the frustrations of baptizing someone. You can't say everything you want to say about what's taking place here. You know, this, this is not just putting someone under the water. This is celebrating 
a deliverance. It's celebrating a transfer. Someone who had been a part of the domain of darkness is now a part of the kingdom of God's glorious light. That's made clear in the rest of the sentence. In whom, of his beloved son, into the kingdom of his beloved son, now in him, in the son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So, that summary of the gospel, we've been transferred, delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. And it is because of Christ, what Christ has accomplished for us, the beloved son, in whom we have redemption, that is the forgiveness of sins. So that's the key issue as we come to conclusion. The key issue between those who are in the dominion of darkness and those who are in the kingdom of light, the key issue is not that some people never got to the dominion of darkness, that we're born in the dominion of darkness. Christ doesn't help us to avoid the dominion of darkness. He delivers us out of the dominion of darkness. We are then in the kingdom of his marvelous light. And, and we are in it now, but we will be in it fully on the day of the Lord. And what will be the explanation? It is exactly what you see in concluding this sentence. In whom, that is in Christ, we have redemption, salvation. And what is salvation? The forgiveness of sins. We had to get to this verse before we could stop. This is this powerful summary of the gospel. You say someone's come to faith in Christ. You say, well, what exactly does that mean? That means that she is now delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved son in whom she has redemption, the forgiveness of sins. She, he, we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. This describes our salvation, describes how glorious our salvation is. Before Paul gets to any of the issues in the church in Colossae, he wants them to exult in the gospel. And this exaltation in the gospel we find in Colossians chapter 1, just these verses, ends with this absolutely climactic passage. We have to go, but I want to leave you with this. The most amazing thing is, this climactic passage is followed by an even more climactic passage. That'll have to be next time. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful you've given us your word in such power to study. Thank you for bringing your word as always, your living word, to this living people. May we live for Christ, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.